on this day in 1985, Tears for Fears, a.k.a. Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith, hit number one with this song. Great days, weren't they, Ben? Here you are in the offices of Crackham, you know, penning your best work, listen to listen to the radio, and you've got that on the on, on, on the channels. Wait, in the 80s? I'm not that old. Oh, sorry. Like, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, my mistake. Bloody. Yeah. Whew. Anyway, it was regarded as one of the most recognisable songs from the mid-80s, and the song was inspired actually by Forget Light Therapy, therapy Treatment. It was inspired by um, Primal Therapy Treatment. One of the Tears for Fears guys had Primal Therapy Treatment, which worked by getting people to confront their fears by shouting and screaming. Um, uh, which John Lennon had Primal Therapy. Have you had tri- Primal Therapy Treatment? I think that's how people worked out their stress at Parliament. Right. Okay. Yeah, um, John Lennon had it. And last year, Orzabel and Smith were honoured with the Ivor Novello Award for recognising the era-defining Tears for Fears albums. It's 24 to 5, the panel, RNZ National. We have Ben Thomas, Sue Bradford with me today. Now to this, certainly big geopolitical news, front page New York Times. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is the highest level American official to go to Taiwan since 1997. The Speaker is a long-standing critic of China. In Beijing, she's viewed as hostile, reports Jane Pelez in the New York Times. China immediately announced plans for live force military drills. Those who play with fire will perish by it, Beijing warned in a statement. China claims Taiwan a self Governing Island Democracy, 80 miles off the coast of China, is part of their territory. Now with us is New Zealander Oliver Ibbotson. He's made Taiwan his home for many years now. His whanau's there and he joins us live from Taiwan. Oliver, welcome to the panel. Thanks, Wallace, and um, hi to Ben and Sue as well. Uh, good to hear our Kiwi accent again. <laughs> um, Oliver, what do you know about the visit. Has Pelosi's visit had a high profile? Uh, absolutely. In terms of profile, it's certainly the uh, biggest news in Taiwan for a long time. Uh, I would say, in some ways, Western media are probably overplaying it a bit, though Taiwan media are probably underplaying it a bit. Not many people here are feeling the risk or the threat. Um compared to what you might see in the New York Times, as you've just uh, highlighted. Um, We're not really seeing the threat as much here, but we are anticipating some sort of military drills or something by China as a reaction to the visit. So what was the the reaction in the Taiwanese media? Uh, So the Taiwanese media... um, in fact, last year there was a political poll taken and apparently 77% of Taiwanese see themselves as Taiwanese, our own independent nation, our own country, um, and by any metric in terms of democracy, borders, currency, military, it is a country in itself. We just maintain the fiction in New Zealand that it's not. Um, so Taiwanese media are very pro the visit. Uh, the more conservative side of the Taiwanese media are apprehensive that it might stoke a, um, a reaction by China. And I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle there'll be some sort of military drill or something that China will do to uh, 
to at least show that they are not happy with the visit. Right, but, but before we go, to, seems unlikely. Before we go to our uh, panelists, Oliver, uh, what was I mean? Do, do do you know much or anything about Pelosi's itinerary? Was there an entourage? Was there um, how, how how did it show itself? The visit. Uh, well, according to the line groups in Taiwan, there's, um, Pelosi arrived with a number of uh, jets, more than the US president surrounding her plane um, to keep her safe. My understanding of the inventory, uh, uh, itinerary is apparently she's roughly just having lunch, meeting the president, and then leaving. So it's probably more of a poke in the eye with China than actually achieving much more than uh, just being here for a very short time. All right. Um, well, well, let's go to let's so, uh, significant. Let's go to Sue Bradford on the Sue. Um, it doesn't seem like the wisest move on the part of the United States to be pushing, uh, provoking China at a time when the world is already suffering such massive crises economically and with the war in Ukraine. Um, and with the climate, uh, that there's other priorities and poking and prodding at China in this in this way um, really seems unnecessary. Um, and I can't quite understand um, when really what we need is peace, <laughs> as much peace as we can get in the Pacific rather than um, just lighting a match that might create a more warlike situation, heaven forbid. Yes, yeah, stay there, Oliver. Let's bring Ben in as well. Yeah. I accurate Oliver. Um, yeah, I, I was in Taiwan a long time ago now, maybe 2006. Um, and at that point, there was actually a lot of optimism that sort of the inc- probably in the same way that there was between the United States and uh, China, that sort of increasing economic interaction and, and uh, would lead to a kind of enduring sort of uh, peaceful coexistence, um, but but I understand tension. You know, t- tensions are, are much higher now. Um, you know, what's the sort of feeling uh, kind of within Taiwan about you know whether this is sort of a clear and present danger? Not so much you know with Pelosi's visit, but but sort of in in the near term with China. I think that's a really good question, Ben. Um, I mean, we got our son, our son was born in Taiwan, so he's Taiwanese, but we made sure we got our New Zealand passport as soon as possible so that if we need to jump out, we will leave very quickly. Um, There is a sort of feeling like Xi Jinping wants to have some sort of legacy and if he can, quote, unify China, um, that would be a legacy he would want to leave and he is getting older. So there is a feeling like Maybe we've got a 15-year window. Um, but we're so economically interdependent now that it's really hard to see a hot war. Right. It's more likely there'll be some sort of economic buying of Taiwanese companies or, or something right. like ah, that. Yeah. I mean, if you want a computer chip or something, Taiwan produces something like 90% of the world's computer chips. It would not be wise to attack us with a, in a hot war, but there might be some sort of economic buying of companies that they Just on a more white Oliver, just on a personal level, I mean, I, I was talking to uh, someone on the panel many weeks ago when um, Odessa first got bombed. That's the beautiful port town in Ukraine and tourist town. And uh, this person who's from Odessa said, 
he was just walking around Auckland in a daze. He couldn't think straight because he had never, ever thought this would happen. They'd kind of been forewarned about it, but he just couldn't actually believe it that uh, his town, indeed Ukraine, was under threat. Do you yourself get a sense of that? Are you just a little bit nervous on the back of Sue Bradford's comment? In the back of your mind, gosh, what if? I would say that, as terrible as it sounds, the Russian crisis with Ukraine or the war with Ukraine probably stopped anything. China is unlikely to react militarily because they would see uh, that the world the world could afford to cut off Russia. The world would probably cut off China in a similar way, or at least that's a threat to them. Um, so I'm not feeling any level of risk or apprehension or anything right now. Um, with that being said, we would take seriously any advice from, I guess, MFAT officials or anyone. We would totally... Yeah. We would be prepared to leave the country if something happened and we wouldn't ask too many questions. We just don't see it as happening just yet. Hey, kia ora, Oliver. Nice to, nice to hear your voice. We might come back to you uh, uh, again on this situation, but for now, that is Oliver Ibbotson. Uh, his father is uh, in Taiwan, from Taiwan. He's made Taiwan his home, and uh, that's the situation there. It is uh, 16 to 5. I, I've got to come back to this because we had a bit of response on this. Wallace, I have a light therapy lamp about the size of an iPad, which I got in the UK a few years ago. Uh, SAD is recognised, well, seasonal affective disorder is recognised as a medical issue. So Ben's lamp is fantastic. I love it. Makes a room more cheerful on a gloomy day. Another one here. I went to Norway to visit my family and found they all use light lamps in winter. Apparently some beds are used to be prescribed by doctors to combat winter depression. With us on the line is Rose. Rose, welcome to the panel. Oh, thank you. Nice to be here. It's lovely to have you on. So Ben's right here. He uh, uses a uh, light therapy. You you do too. I do. How so? What what do you do? Um, I was actually had it recommended to me by a psychiatrist to help deal with my um, winter blues. Um, so there's a test you can do to work out your morningness status. And that tells you what time of day, what time of morning is going to suit you best. So 6.30 is my morningness time. So I sit and have my breakfast with the light glowing and it's great. Does it work? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I was a bit sceptical when, <laughs> when, I, when I started in, I think a few years ago now. Um, but what I noticed is that, you know, like a lot of our New Zealanders, you know, during sort of uh, June, July, August, I'd sort of think, oh, my life's falling apart. I've made mistakes with everything. You know, it's all gone wrong. And then in September, I'd think, oh, no, wait, that was just winter again. Yeah, OK. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> and um, and I, I think as a country, we have a bit of seasonal affective disorder. Um, and so sort of, you know, I'd read a bit about them, uh, you know, online or something. And I, I think at the time there was some kind of problem – uh, importing LED lights or batteries or something. Right. So I had to get this one from New Zealand that looks like a gigantic sort of overhead metal light from an 80s horror movie in yeah. a hospital. And, um, it's fantastic. So if I, if I was, if I did feel a bit down, Rose, you would recommend me undergoing this sort of light 
therapy? I imagine it's worth a try. Yeah. Um, I suffered from depression anyway, and right. I had got to the stage where I really couldn't take a, a higher level of antidepressants. Um, and this is a very well-respected uh, psychiatrist in Wellington, and she put me through the test and said she thought that it would have a good effect for me, and I think it has. Great to have you on, Rose. Kia ora. Thanks, thanks for being with us. It's 13 to 5, the panel. Very different topic here. The government is pushing ahead with a bill that aims to reduce firearms-related crime by introducing firearms prohibition orders. A person deemed high-risk and subject to an order would not be able to use, access or be around guns. They would also not be able to live in or visit locations where there are firearms or associate with someone who has them. Concerns have been raised about the bill's potential to infringe on people's freedom and is likely to disproportionately affect Māori. Regardless, the bill is tipped to pass its second and third reading by the end of the week. With us is Monique Van Alphen Fife, who's on the Law Society's Human Rights and Privacy Committee. Monique, welcome to the panel. Wallace, thank you for having me. Pleasure. So the Law Society presented to the Justice Committee at the Select Committee stage has the report addressed your concerns? Uh, to a large degree, the answer is no. Um, I think I should say at the outset that the Law Society of Tikahui today um, does support the purpose of the firearms no. bill um, to improve public safety and prevent um, harm from people who are at high risk of violence. But the key issues that we raised at the Select Committee were, were, were the, the, the problems with the Bill of Rights implications and that it limits people's human rights in a way that hasn't been, we think, um, on the basis of the evidence put forward being demonstrably justified as it's required to do under the Bill of Rights Act. So a lot of our um, submission was around those points um, and and many of them haven't been addressed um, in the Select Committee's report. I think the primary thing that they did um, adopt from our submissions was that they uh, changed one of the requirements for a judge who's who's putting in um, making orders under this under this regime is that they have to be reasonably necessary, not just necessary, um, which is a small one, I suppose. But there are other problems with the act that re- sorry with the bill that remain. Yeah, and let's jump straight to the panel on this, Sue Bradford. Um, I'm not familiar um, at all with this legislation. Um, all I can say is that anything that that tries to bring greater gun control. Is a, is a good thing, but yes, we always have to worry about human rights, and especially if Māori are going to be disproportionately affected, um, given that, that so many um, Māori and others, um, especially in rural areas, do need to use guns for actually to feed their families. Um, and I'd be worried about the impacts on people like that if, for example, they had a criminal record or, or other issues that might be affected under this legislation. Because there comes a point when when hunting and fishing is, is the only means of survival for some people. Stay there, Monique. Let's bring Ben as well, and you can respond, Ben. Yeah, I, I just wanted to ask Monique, because I haven't looked at the law closely, <clears throat> um, is, is, is the issue that if you're deemed an unfit person and you have a, a prohibition order against you, you know, that's the say, sayonara to ever seeing any of your friends who still own a gun. Is, is that sort of the situation, or...? <laughs> Effectively, yes. I mean, just to pick up on some of the things that Sue has said, just to describe what the bill does. So it essentially puts in place a list of what it calls uh, serious offences. It adopts 
uh, a list of um, serious uh, violence offences and says that if you're convicted of these things, then there will be um, a firearms prohibition order in place on you once you are convicted of that offence. And it basically limits your ability to A, own a gun, B, have, be in the presence of a gun, um, and, and a whole host of other things. For instance, you can't go to another person's house for two non-consecutive days in a year if they own a gun. That will be a strict liability offence, and you will be prosecuted if you're found out um, and uh, under this firearms protection order regime. And so essentially... it. it, it creates this kind of, I think, vicious circle, picking up on what Sue has said, of uh, ongoing criminalisation of people who are often in a vulnerable position anyway. And the the point that Sue made about um, Māori in particular was made by the Law Society too, and that, you know, especially that... um, provision that says you can't have uh, you can't visit a place for two non-consecutive days um, if that place has firearms that just I think has massive implications for Māori as well I mean if, if you're going to marae or other people's houses um, and you don't even know that they have a firearm then you are potentially committing an offence and like I said a vicious circle with uh, we think um, relatively light on the evidence that this is actually going to make a difference but the other critical aspect is that there's often like no rational connection. So some of these offences, that list of serious offences, won't involve guns at all. And I'll just give you some examples, the more peculiar of them. Give us two. For instance. Yep. Um, yeah. So so, so that, that doesn't have anything to do with firearms and, and you could end up with a 10-year prohibition order on that basis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Although, I mean, you know, one of the things that comes up, <coughs> pardon me, with a lot of the Viol- you know, we probably have more examples from the United States, uh, is that, you know, people who use firearms to kill other people often have, say, domestic violence convictions. Now, I, I mean, I would have thought, you know, maybe it's not rationally connected to firearms, but I, I would think that somebody who has a history of violence against their partners probably shouldn't have a gun around. Um, no, I, I, I think I'd agree with you on that. And I think um, if, if there is evidence to show that that is a kind of stepping stone to violent offences with a firearm and that is a risk, then then that is a rational connection. And if there is evidence provided that that is uh, the likely stepping stone, then that would be rationally connected and potentially demonstrably justified. The difficulty is that the evidence wasn't put forward. All right. Uh, very good, Monique. Kia ora. Thank you for this, Monique Van Alphen Fife, uh, on the Law Society's Human Rights and Privacy Committee. That bill is tipped to pass its second uh, and third reading by the end of this week. You'll hear more about that, I'm sure. Now, earlier this week, we asked you if New Zealand is a country of bad drivers. Well, we were flooded. <laughs> Weren't we, Ben? Obviously. With people claiming we are, compared to other countries, that was the experience of listener Mark, who had just returned from a trip to the UK. Only twice did I feel that I was being unnecessarily tailgated by anybody. And I swear on a trip back from the airport to my house in Coatesville, just north of Auckland, um, tailgated all the way. There you go. So I thought, let's bring in the experts. Chris Lecluse has a 20-year career in the Western Australian Police Force. He's worked in crash, crash investigation. He's in New Zealand right now. Chris, welcome to the panel. Thank you very much. Uniformly, people said New Zealand are bad drivers. Your thoughts? Well, I don't really wish to uh, interfere with trans-Tasman relations, but <laughs> <laughs> suffice it to say... It's a very subjective issue, really. Uh, What is bad driving? So I think culturally there's a lot of alignment between Australia and New Zealand. 
what differs is the geography. So in New Zealand, you have lovely uh, mountainous regions, etc., uh, narrow winding roads. In Australia, it's a big brown flat land. So that's where the differences occur. But if I had to choose who is a better uh, nation of drivers, potentially I would say uh, New Zealand, believe it or not. Wow. Okay. All right. Let's bring our panel on this. Sue. Um, I've never driven um, in any country except New Zealand. <laughs> so I'm really not qualified to, to be carrying out comparisons. Yeah, Ben. All, I have to say. <laughs> You were uh, shaking your head earlier. Uh, yeah, I was, I was just wondering what the sort of nature of the feedback was. Was it all other Kiwi drivers are bad? 90% are no. saying that we, New Zealanders, are bad drivers. Compare, they go overseas to the UK, polite as anything. Yeah, I don't know. The last time I was on UK roads, they were pretty treacherous. Okay. I, th- I, think it's a, I think it's probably a matter of where you go, right? So if you're driving around New Zealand, you know, you'll see people hooning around taking sort of 45 degree angle corners at about 120 degree, uh, 120 Ks. Um, and then, you know, if you go into the, the far reaches of southern England, you'll be in these small little midsummer murders hedgerows with people zooming around it like it's in an Elon Musk rocket tunnel or something. So, look, I I suspect it might be sort of regional differences uh, within the countries. Well, Chris, uh, as, as, as a person who's worked in this field, are there a couple of tips, two or three tips that you can give us this afternoon? Oh, look, absolutely. I think what we've got to do is understand what constitutes poor driving, and everyone's got their own beliefs, understanding of what is a poor driver. We often look, while we're driving, we all see what we consider to be bad driving in others. But one thing I've always wanted to know is, has anyone bothered to look in the mirror? You know, people that are considered bad drivers are rarely bad drivers all the time, and there's a little bit of those bad drivers in all of us. Yep. So once we start to recognise that we all contribute to being a bad driver at times and we can start to identify what those behaviours are that make other people look at us in disgust, that's when we can start to adjust those behaviours and perhaps make it a safer environment for all road users. A hundred percent. We've got people like Ben Thomas here. He's just got his licence, doesn't even recognise it. He can't even look in the mirror and say, you know what, I'm a, I might be part of the bad driver problem. <laughs> Is that right, Ben? No, well, I don't think that's fair. I, uh, no, I do, do have a few tickets. I've paid my debt to society. You paid your <laughs> yeah. Very, very good. And one person wanted to ask about tailgating. How dangerous is that, in your opinion? Tailgating is obviously an inherent danger. Um, and it's how people gauge those distances. In the old days, they used to say you need to be X amount of metres behind a vehicle at any speed. So what is a 15-metre gap when you're travelling at 100 kilometres per hour? So rather than that, we really need to gauge that in seconds. So once the tail of the vehicle in front of you passes an inanimate object, you count three seconds, and if your vehicle has passed that um, object within that three seconds, then you are following too close, and that's relevant for all vehicles. Great so tip, Chris. That's in perfect conditions. Very good. That's Chris Close there, a uh, Australian uh, car expert, Sue Bradford, Ben Thomas. You've both been wonderful. Kia ora. Thanks for your time. I'm Wallace Chapman. Checkpoint next. See you tomorrow.